morning. You're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka, where we talk about national issues from a local level through a lens of diversity. You're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, broadcasting live from downtown New Haven. We are streaming live on TuneIn Radio and NewHavenIndependent.org. We're also streaming live on Facebook. You can find us on the New Haven Independent Facebook page, as well as the Fit Muslimah Facebook page. So um, we are here on another wonderful Wednesday morning and it has finally started to warm up slightly warm up just a little bit it was really cold for a couple of days and I don't know why spring just seems like it's not fighting hard enough it's not come on spring we're rooting for you you have to come out I still (laughs) have my jacket it's ridiculous because it's the 18th of April oh my goodness But today we have um, with us two women to talk about a very important topic. Um, I would like to welcome back to the show, Khadija Gurner. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's always a pleasure, Mubaraka. Thank you for having me. And on the phone, we have a Connecticut resident, but she is not here today. So she's joining us on the phone, Dr. Abigail Maxwell. Um, welcome, Abigail, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation, Mubarka. Awesome. So today we are talking about the American health crisis of black maternal health. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about both of our guests. So um, Abigail is a board-certified pediatrician who subspecializes in neonatology. She completed her pediatric residency training at UMDNJ in Newark, New Jersey, and her neonatology fellowship training at Maria Ferrari Children's Hospital at Westchester Medical Center, where she helped develop their first milk bank. She is the owner of Anacom Inc. and works nationally in level two to four NICU centers. She is particularly interested in urban centers where she advocates for mothers, especially black moms. She recognizes the inherent racial bias many healthcare providers have towards families of African descent and uses these work opportunities to address these biases and also empower the families of her patients. She is a champion for breastfeeding as an integral part of infant health and has successfully engaged in many minority mothers of preterm babies to breastfeed. So she, in addition, she is a mom herself of four, uh, the wife, and she is a wife of her of husband, Carrie Maxwell, and she lives here in Connecticut. Um, and Khadija has been on our show a couple of times, and we are excited to um, have Khadija back um, as a part, as a regular guest now. I'm going to call you a regular guest. I'm going to own you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank so, you so much. Um, Khadija Gurner is an advocate and a mother. She works as a campaign director on faith-based outreach and immigration advocacy 
advocacy at Moms Rising. Khadija has worked on engaging government and nonprofit sectors to achieve racial justice and health outcomes. She was awarded a Champion of Change Award from the Obama White House for her work engaging faith communities on health care access. She is a master in public health from Yale School of Public Health and over 15 years of experience in community outreach. So when um, I decided I wanted to do a show on um, black maternal health, of course, these are the first two women that came to mind, and they were both so gracious to to talk to us about this conversation. So black maternal health has, I think, particularly um, in the last, uh, say, three, four years since we have had a rise of the Black Lives Matter movement in particular, I think has taken um, a little bit more of a focus. Um, it. I think in the public health um, arena, it has always been known and been a concern for a while, but a little bit more of it becoming more public knowledge that this is actually a crisis here in America. We live in a country that is the richest, one of the richest countries on earth. It, we spend more per capita on health care for individuals in the United States than any other nation in the world. But yet black mothers are dying four times that of their white counterparts. So this is not just a, a crisis of health. It's actually also a crisis of race. And so today our conversation is going to surround why do we have this crisis? What exactly um, is its um, impact on our society and how did we get here? Right. So. Um, and the interesting thing about this conversation, what I thought in, in the beginning when I was thinking about how do we approach this is it's not like, okay, this is 2018. It is not 1818 where black women had, did not have access or did not have the same health providers as white women. It's not like we are in segregated hospitals or in segregated, you know, Black women can't go to certain doctors. We, I mean, more or less, even you have access to the same. So why are black women dying much more? So that's interesting that you have that comparison because um, New York Times just had a very profound article and it, it looked at this idea. Um, were What are the racial disparities during slavery? Like say for 1850 is the example they gave and the racial disparities now. So infant mortality in, in, in 1850 for black women, um, so black infant mortality was 340 deaths per thousand live births. And for white infants, it was 217 deaths per 1,000 births. So there was clearly a disparity and people were concerned about it. But today, the difference is, so both rates have dropped dramatically, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the difference has actually grown. So at this moment, um, the infant mortality rate for black babies is 11.3. So 11.3 deaths per thousand live births. And for white babies is 4.9 per thousand births. So that means a black child is, uh, a, a white child is twice as likely to reach one years old than a black child born today. Mm. So this, I, part of that, um, 
this it's an interesting idea that you brought up are do black women actually have the same kind of access to care that white women do and i think that's a topic that um in the public health world has been looked at a lot right and i do want to talk about that but as people have examined what kind of access to healthcare black women have what kind of access to white women uh, access to healthcare white women have and there are clear racial disparities so one of the examples uh, i will give you that is an example that um many people know of is we discussed briefly yesterday Serena Williams and she spoke about her birth right so mm-hmm. she had access to incredible healthcare some of the best healthcare you can get but her experience as a black woman black woman found her that she um she was left wanting so she was actually postpartum she had a c-section she was experiencing trouble breathing and in that situation after c-section that's something that should be watched for but she wasn't watched and she had a near death experience like 65,000 women nationally have a near death experience after giving birth mm. and serena williams one of the most powerful black women in this country was one of those mm. so even if you have access i would i would argue that even if you have access to the same hospitals the same doctors the same nurses the experience that black women are having is very different to the experience that white women are having mm-hmm. going through the same services even when they have access to the same services because there's a disparity there right mm-hmm. um and one of the reasons is and it's been studied a lot is there's strong neg- strong stereotypes and um misconceptions that even healthcare workers who are well educated so for example doctors have about black women that they can tolerate higher pain that they can um that the pain so for example Serena Williams was very clearly saying she was she was experiencing distress but that distress was dismissed and that's not a unique experience so so let's bring that sure. that's a good point let's bring Abigail in on that point so Abigail you are active a doctor that is active in the medical field and you deal every day in these arenas in hospitals. You deal with, with children who are in a health crisis and families. Do you see a difference in how doctors respond to black families versus families of other races? Um, yes, definitely I do. Um, so I, I start off with, you know, talking with moms before they actually deliver, doing the neonatology consultation, meeting the families. Then I have those who, you know, deliver and I meet them then and then others who are transferred in. Um, but along the way, there definitely are, you know, different points in which um, healthcare providers have an opportunity to connect with the mothers. Um, I have had a chance to actually observe other providers talking with parents and then having parents talk to me about their experience with providers. And definitely there is there is a bias. Uh, sometimes it is conscious, other times it is unconscious. It's conscious in how uh, the providers react to the families. Um, but that, the thing about, about racism is that unless you experience it or unless there's documentation of it or, you know, many articles that come out, it's oftentimes hard to, to tease out and to explain to others. Um, and I'm really glad that more articles are coming out talking about it. And even this last New York Times article um, talking about experiences that, that women that women have in the healthcare field. So yes, I definitely agree. Um, access to healthcare is one problem. 
However, even for women who do have access, for example, I did training in Newark, New Jersey, and a lot of the mothers were um, had Medicaid insurance. And they would call the clinics for an appointment for the first OB, and sometimes it wouldn't be seen for two, even three months, because the clinic would only see six patients with Medicaid in a given day, you know, two or three days a week. Wow. So these women have insurance, but they don't have the access. And, you know, you can say, it's, is a clinic really busy? No, it's just a clinic has chosen not to take, you know, a complete slate of Medicaid patients. Mm, mm. So, so one of the so one of the interesting things that you know people uh, I know for me until I found out this information I had kind of like this curiosity and this is probably just a side note to add to the conversation is one of the reasons why there is a clear um, preference in medical in the medical offices and hospitals for people with uh, insurance um, HMOs versus Medicaid is the government does not reimburse doctors and medical providers 100% when a patient has Medicaid. So if for every dollar they only get, I believe the last um, amount that I heard was like 72 cents for every dollar. So if they do a procedure that is a hundred dollars, someone on Medicaid to someone who's on Medicaid, they're only actually going to get $73 for that hundred. And so they try to compensate for the additional with patients who have HMOs and understanding that actually uh, brings lots of questions in mind into policy and things like that, which is probably a whole nother conversation. So I just thought that I make that side note because often we I think before I knew that, that there was a clear financial difference, like that's a, I mean, because in the end, they still got to get paid, right? <laughs> um, why doctors treated people with Medicaid or Medicare differently. And it really, uh, in, in lots of instances, comes down to the money. And that is a policy issue more than anything. When we talk about... Yes, that's definitely true. When yeah. we talk about... Um, um, the diff the just having access it's it's not just a poverty issue so we it's not just about poor women because even with women who as you mentioned serena williams even with women who clearly does not fall in that 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 category when they look at your peers which which is i was watching a documentary earlier um and they mentioned that the health outcome for a black woman with an advanced education is the same as a white woman, woman who does not have a high school diploma. Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, so that, that is, this is a very important point that it's not just about access. So as you mentioned that even black educated black women, so they, They've studied this intensively, right? And they've looked at, and it's the interesting thing is that it's not the case that poorer and less educated um, women have worse health outcomes, worse infant and maternal health outcomes. Um, it's about race, that a black educated woman still has a higher risk of maternal mortality than uh, a, a white woman who doesn't have the same educational level, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the interesting thing for me as an immigrant, as a black immigrant, is that they looked at 
when you have black immigrants, so immigrants from Africa, immigrants from the Caribbean, actually have similar maternal outcomes to white women. Mm. But their children, their children have worse health outcomes. So this is not just... This is not so. That's really interesting. Yes. So why do they think that yes. that's so? So so let I just want to. I I need you to repeat that. Yes. Because I think that is a really profound point. Yeah. So, um, black immigrants, immigrants from Africa, immigrants from the Caribbean, actually have similar outcomes, maternal and infant mortality, infant um, um, birth outcomes, as white women in America, but their children. Don't the children, their children, so second, third generation immigrants, black immigrants actually have worse health outcomes than their white peers. So this idea, this um, maternal mortality crisis isn't about race. It's how race is experienced in America. Mm. It's about how you experience race in America as a black woman. Something about what black women are experiencing in America is what is causing this um, um, these horrible maternal and infant mortality rates, these mm-hmm. these racial disparities. It's how we're experiencing it. Mm-hmm. So um, part of the and there's you know when people discovered this, it was shocking because people assume that it was to do with poverty. That people confound poverty and race, but race and poverty are. Um, actually two distinct things when, especially when we're talking about um, maternal and infant health. So that's a, what's, so what's interesting or what pops out to me about that particular thing, again, just bringing kind of like this, uh, this asterisk to listeners is that it's, even though how doctors react or treat you or have uh, unconscious bias is a part of it, but that's not the whole story. Mm-hmm. It's not just the doctor's fault. Mm-hmm. It is. It starts before that. Yes. So one of the the one of the 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 points that um, I was reading said that it, that black women also having uh, not just less access to health care, but um, not being insured and so they could have pre-existing conditions that are just exacerbated by pregnancy so you have high blood pressure but you have no idea you have high blood pressure because you don't have health insurance right and so we have at least a system i know in connecticut where a pregnant woman can get husky but before you're pregnant you don't have husky so if you are okay now i'm pregnant and i'm going to the doctor the pregnancy just exacerbates the things that were wrong with me that I didn't even know about before because I haven't been to a doctor in five years. So I'm going to pick up this thread and I'd also like to turn it over to Dr. Abigail in a minute to explain um, this in more detail, but I'm going to pick up that thread. So the things that are pre-existing within you determines your health outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying and what research is showing is that how you experience racism is a pre-existing condition influences how your body how your body is responding to racism has an effect on your maternal health Mm. and has an effect on your child's health Mm. and uh, dr abigail um as a doctor i'd love for you to take over and um, explore this a little bit more 
Do you okay, want to chime on that? So, um, so one uh, researcher that I uh, read about in the same article, Dr. Arlene Geronimus, um, came up with this theory of weathering, uh, which mm-hmm. explains the toxic effect that stress has on the body and saying this stress, you know, deteriorates the body. Um, so this is before a woman even becomes pregnant, she's living in, you know, in a state, in a country in which there is systemic racism, and she encounters that in many different forms. And then she, you know, becomes pregnant, so the baby's coming into an environment that the body's already stressed. Then on top of that, you know, there are pregnancy-related stressors that occur too as well. So then what leads to these, you know, babies being born early? Uh, risk factors for prematurity. Um, definitely um, poverty is one. Um, access to health care, as you mentioned, limited access, systemic racism, and stress. So underneath the category of stress, there are also microaggressions that um, women come across um, within the healthcare field, within a hospital, or even after that, um, whether that's being ignored when they're giving, um, explain what's wrong with their bodies. Um, One thing that we're taught in medical school is to listen to your patient. The patient will often tell you what's wrong with them, will help you with diagnosing them. Um, Oftentimes we come in in a paternalistic, you know, um, frame of mind and say, this is what's wrong with you. You do this, you know, go home and come back in one or two weeks. But that actually, those microaggressions actually have a physical impact on on the pregnancy, on the women too as well. So then when we're looking at um, neonatal uh, mortality rates, the different factors that go into that, including uh, birth defects, preterm birth, uh, sudden infant death syndrome, and the maternal pregnancy complications, uh, with preterm birth, we know that black women have the highest rate of preterm births and low birth weight. So we have, you know, different factors at play that then lead to these outcomes. Um, so as, you know, I think we pretty much can agree, addressing poverty won't fix it. I think the major thing is addressing racism and how do we address that um, individually and as a system. I don't have any answers for as a system, but in terms of individually, um, you know, what I do when I'm at work is that if I come across a situation, you know, for example, uh, a nurse might be, you know, telling me about a mother who she feels is um, being difficult or, um, you know, demanding, and I always ask them, what do you mean? Like, tell me exactly how this mother is being difficult. Older asking a lot of questions. So I said, oh, okay, questions such as what? Questions about their baby, questions on the care, or questions about, you know, what are the questions specifically? So then I really wanted them to, not just me to tell them they're being racist, but then to actually see through my questioning, you know, what their implicit biases are towards this mother, which then will impact the care that they give to that baby. Mm. Another, another um, area, too, is that some, you know, some hospitals like to have conferences with, um, with families, and those conferences will, will involve the families, the you know, mother or the father, whichever support person, and then oftentimes it'll be the direct healthcare provider, the neonatologist, and the other specialties. So you're walking into the room and there are, you know, three family members and then maybe 10 others in the healthcare field. So that dynamic of power is very skewed. So the parents come into that room feeling disempowered, number one, because they're in the minority. There are three people, two or three people in a group of 10 others who are more educated than them. And then oftentimes, too, if you look at the racial disparity to, you know, the black parents in the room has people who are not black. So there's feeling disempowered on two different um, two different levels. Um, so what I like to do, I mean, obviously I'm a black physician, so I connect with my parents, but I also like to have smaller meetings 
because I ultimately want the parents to feel empowered in the care for their baby and to speak up whenever they, you know, whenever they have concerns and to feel like they're going to be listened to. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM on your New Haven radio dial, streaming live from downtown New Haven. We're also streaming live on TuneIn Radio and newhavenindependent.org. You can uh, catch the live video on the New Haven Independent Facebook page as well as the Fit Muslimah Facebook page. Um, and we're talking to Khadija Gurna and Dr. Abigail Maxwell today about the uh, black about black maternal health. Um, Abigail, it sounds like uh, really from your perspective, uh, individually, uh, I guess, pointing out without kind of totally calling somebody out of the unconscious bias right so a black woman who asks a lot of questions is being difficult versus other people are just showing concern right is an important part of that advocacy we know that there is an issue what are some of the um and both of you can can chime in what are some of the things that we need to do from a um i guess policy or systems perspective Mm -hmm that can help mitigate this crisis that we're in? Well, I think what you're doing here right now is an important, is an important step, raising awareness that this is happening, right? And there is an alliance um, and an organization called Black Mamas Matter, and they can be found at www.blackmamasmatter.org. And so there, as as we've connected on that, they have a, um, there's an organiz- they've organized a Black Maternal Health Week, and that to raise awareness, to talk about these issues, to talk about what's being done across the country um, to address these issues. And on May 6th to 8th in Washington, D.C., there's going to be a rally in support of improving maternal health outcomes on Sunday, May 6th from 1 to 4, and there will be um, marches in different states um, as well, uh, sister sister marches. So one thing that I've noticed from a policy perspective is that we're beginning to hear more about this in D.C., right? Because even though um, people have been aware and are intervening on an individual level, for it to be addressed on a systemic level, it really has to float up to the level of policy and um, legislation, right? Mm-hmm. Um to make it, to have systemic, um, to make systemic changes. And so something that's really important that's been happening is that, um, for example, um, there was a Black Maternal Health Week resolution supported by Senator Kamala Harris and Representative Alma Adams. So you're hearing the beginnings. A resolution is a statement, um, but it's an official statement coming from members of Congress, right? And for a lot of the advocacy work that I do that, we work towards getting some bills um, at a national level and at a state level to address some of these issues, right? And um, so give us an example of some of the, the, the policy changes that... Oh, okay. Um, so some of, one of the things, actually, one of the things that um, my colleagues at Moms Rising are working on, for example, is paid family leave, right? Mm-hmm. Paid family leave 
and equal and equal pay for women because they've looked at research and found that just having time for a woman to recover, you know, a lot of women don't have paid family leave. And so that means they go right back to work right after having a baby, which can complicate healing and recovery and also cuts off the ability for you to go and have these regular check-ins to keep tabs on how you're doing with your health outcomes. Mm -hmm. So having paid family leave actually has a positive effect on maternal health mm -hmm. and postpartum health. And so that's actually right here in Connecticut. We're working towards um, a paid family leave act. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that you can plug into that will have a direct impact having equal pay um, all of these things. That, so people think of it, when you think of healthcare, you're thinking of access to health and so on. And that's really important. But systemic issues, because this is a systemic problem, right? Systemic um, issues also have a really strong and positive or negative effect on people. So having equal pay for women, um, lower stress, you know, gives them better access to healthcare. So all of these things that when you empower women, you will be empowering them, you will be improving healthcare outcomes. Mm. So those are systemic, th these are policy changes that are happening right here in Connecticut that people are fighting for, right, that you can take part in. Um, but at a national level, I, I think that um, organizations such as Moms Rising and Black, the Black Mamas Matter Alliance are pushing, are pushing for policy change. But the only way that we can achieve that is people understand and acknowledge this is a problem that needs intervention and that needs policy change. So what you're doing here is critically important and is the first step towards making policy changes. Abigail, from the medical perspective, do you see that there could be policies or practices that doctors can implement that can um, mitigate some of the, the, the issues around um, black maternal health? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, so on the ground, um, if, if, even going back to medical school, um, you know, having more courses, more um, presentations and actually, you know, didactic lectures on on racism in medicine, right? Not just from a historical perspective, but then even moving forward, like how, you know, our current biases can impact the healthcare that we deliver um, with our bedside care. Um, and then moving forward into hospitals, um, you know, every year most hospitals have online training modules that everybody has to go through. And one of those modules, you know, I really believe should be, um, you know, conscious and unconscious bias and racism in medicine mm -hmm. so that we can, you know, be aware of the delivery of healthcare that we're given, giving, giving to our patients and also to how our biases can impact that. Mm -hmm. so, so right now that's not a standard training for doctors. I mean, it, you know, depending on where the hospital is, like, you know, when I went to residency in New Jersey, we did have cultural, uh, cultural lectures, but they didn't really address the, the racism in medicine that occurs. Mm -hmm. And it is a dynamic field that, you know, that people are talking about it more. So there definitely is room for, room for improvement in mm -hmm. discussing these areas. So I want to, I want to take the conversation um, a little bit, well, a little bit, uh, further into kind of like the health outcome of these babies, mm -hmm. the babies that are born, that are born premature, that are born to moms who, um, you know, have lots of complications or issues and, and pregnancy. Um, 
mm-hmm. what are what are the health outcomes of the children? So we know that we have when we say black maternal rates and, and just correct me if I'm mm-hmm. wrong. We're specifically talking about moms. We're talking about women who die either during childbirth or within a two-year period after childbirth from a childbirth-related complication. Am I I right with that definition? Mm -hmm. Okay. So you have like um, every year 700 to 900 women die from pregnancy um, or child-related causes, but then 65,000 additional women have a near-death experience. Mm. So that's, that's the numbers on exactly what you're saying. So that's, on, that's the maternal mortality rate. Mm. The infant mortality rate is looking at um, the likelihood of a child um, making it to their first year. So in terms of the United States, that a baby born in Libya, a baby born in Libya, has a higher likelihood of making it to their first year than a child born, a black child born in Milwaukee or Cleveland or Detroit. Wow. Yeah. And so we have in the United States one of the worst um, maternal and infant, mort- uh, infant mortality rates in the world and in the developing world, sorry. And um, it's worse. It's um, twice... It's it's significantly worse for black. It's been it's been it's largely that that maternal mortality and infant mortality rate is largely driven by racial disparity. Okay, so explain. So maybe you can chime in on this, Abigail. So we talked about uh, one of the the issues with uh, with uh, with woman mortality rate is how they experience blackness in a world. A six-month-old is not experiencing blackness in the world. Why is the infant death mortality rate for black babies so high? What are some of the contributing factors to that? So the factors that um, that the the mom experiences directly impact the baby, right? So, um, so, uh, you know, inherent with racism, it is, you know, poverty too as well, and also back to the healthcare again, um, you know, babies who are born preterm, um, especially to moms who have preeclampsia, pregnancy-related complications, those babies are often smaller um, than babies who, whose moms don't have preeclampsia. And babies who are growth-restricted babies who are what we call IUGR, um, those babies have an increased risk of um, metabolic syndrome down the road. Now, that's not going to impact them in the, in the one-year period, um, but they just have a whole host of factors that the, their bodies make a, almost like a genetic remodeling um, in response to the stress that their mothers experience. Mm. So, so the health of the mother is directly impacting the health of the baby, which gives them. Uh, but even with that, like really the worst infant mortality rate in a developing world like that really i kind of like shocks me <laughs> Deve- in the developed world yeah in the uh, developed world because right. you know yeah, yeah. i just yeah we part have- of that rate also includes like SIDS. you know you know black black babies have a higher rate of SIDS. um mm-hmm. so the infant mortality rate is um you know looking at birth defects um the rate of preterm births which are higher the rates of SIDS, which are higher in in babies who are born to black mothers. So, yeah. but also, why is that? So that's increased risk of maternal complications in pregnancy. So, so what, what are some of the contributing factors to that? So even with like, you know, 
a baby dying of SIDS increase in the in in among black babies. Why is that? Like, what is some of the contribute? I know we can't like have a solution because then we would be like, oh, they solved all the world's problems. <laughs> but <laughs> Mubarak, but you I- can do it. I believe in you. <laughs> um, I what uh, Dr. Abigail mentioned is that when a child is born too early or a child is born too small, you know, um, sm- lower birth weight babies and small and um, children who are born before you know they do um, all of these things they have higher risks for this so what what she was saying is that how you come into the world right your health coming into the world your birth weight and when you were born right that is going to impact how you experience your first year of life so if you're coming if babies are coming into this world smaller and with a lower birth weight, that that is going to dramatically influence what their first year of life is. Mm, okay. So, so here, so here's the question that I have. Um, even though the there's a disparity there yeah. among white babies who are born premature, the the small percentages that are that are born with low birth rates do they still have a higher chance of making it past their first year than their, we'll call them black baby counterparts. <laughs> so is it the same as with the mothers? Cause we know with mothers, if you look at the, 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 the counterpart of them in the white community, then the mothers still fare far less. Is it the same with infant mortality rate? Abigail, would you do, would you happen to, have a have a um information on that so far could you restate your question when we look at white babies who are born um with a low birth weight who are born premature do they do black babies we're, we're calling them their black baby counterparts still have a higher infant mortality rate when they when we look at both sets of of populations that are both born low birth rate. Um, yes, I don't have any numbers on me directly, but um, definitely, you know, looking at especially the the extreme ends of prematurity, um, black mothers give birth to extremely premature babies more often than white mothers do, and just that being a risk factor by itself has an increased you know, increased propensity for more morbidity, such as respiratory distress, which could lead to, you know, chronic lung disease of prematurity, um, you know, um, eye disease of prematurity, which can lead to blindness. So the more premature that a baby is, the more morbidity that they can have, which then will impact, which then will increase their risk of mortality. Mm-hmm. So what are, so I want to get a little bit into um, kind of like pers- personal, responsibility or personal advocacy people can do because I always like even when we see these problems that seem so big that we feel like oh there's nothing I can do as an individual we all can do something on an individual level for ourselves for our family for our community what are some of the um, things that people can do on an individual level to help whether they're a family member of someone who's expecting or they're expecting themselves So I'm going to um, reclassify personal responsibility as personal empowerment. Um, I like that. So it's it's a difficult because um, you know that's 
why I, I defer to Dr. Abigail on a lot of these things, because we have an information asymmetry. So a woman giving birth, right? There's no way you're going to know as much as your, as your doctor, right? You're not going to know what is a risk factor. And especially when you're giving birth, it's a very emotional time and a very difficult time. So for a woman to know how to um, navigate that, knowing that, so for example, knowing that you have a higher risk, you know, for even as an educated black woman, you have a higher risk um, of maternal mortality for you to navigate that. That's a very complicated thing and hard for you as an individual to navigate or even for your family to seek to help you navigate that because you're never going to have as much information as your healthcare providers. So one way, a micro level, on a micro level, or one way that people have been working on this is looking at um, working with midwives and doulas of color. So this has actually been a very effective intervention in um, developing countries where there's a community-based approach where rather than a woman giving birth and depending on um, you know, the OBs or so that they, that they may not know, they will have the assistance of either a midwife who knows them, who's from the community, um, who's met them before, who's built a relationship with them and will be more responsive to their needs before, during and after birth. Mm-hmm. And a doula is mm-hmm. somebody who can come in, um, in case people aren't familiar with a doula, is somebody who works with the woman as she gives birth in a hospital setting or, you know, whatever setting they're in. But it's somebody who stays by you, who has experienced uh, experience in childbirth and so on, but is your advocate, is your um, support system, and it will help you navigate before, during, and after birth, right? Mm-hmm. So the midwife can actually give birth, and a doula is more of a support system as you give birth, right? Mm-hmm. So that, on a micro level, is a way of um, you navigating this, you know, as a mother. Mm-hmm. As an advocate or as a mother looking to address this systemically, I mentioned earlier the work that we're doing at Moms Rising um, is raising awareness. So, you know, we we actually, one of the things we're doing, um, if you go and find us online, momsrising.org, we're collecting these stories because part of systemic change is documenting that there is a problem, right? And as Dr. Abigail pointed out earlier, racism is still a difficult conversation for us in this country. And then coming out and saying that racism is causing these mortality rates is an even more difficult conversation, right? Mm. So in Mm. order to, um, one of the strategies, one of the ways that my colleagues work on this is they collect stories. So we have a story collection that we can then share with lawmakers, decision makers, policy makers um, to show what the experiences are of black women going through this, you know, so um, you can join us and, um, you know, um, be part of this process. And as I mentioned earlier, if you go to, let me find the website so I don't make a mistake on this, black mama, black mamas don't, black mamas matter.org mm-hmm. um, for more information about, um, a shift in culture for black maternal health, rights, and justice. So there are powerful women across the country doing this work and looking at systemic change. And you are powerful and you can make a difference and you can engage. Abigail, from from the medical perspective, 
how would you recommend, what are some action steps that uh, people can take personal empowerment and advocate for themselves when they are in the hospital for themselves and for their children? Okay. So I, I really believe in empowering parents. Um, so one of my mentors in fellowship, Dr. Parvis, um, used to always tell parents to have a notebook. You know, you're going to have a lot of questions that you're not going to think about when you're in the hospital or during rounds, but write those questions down and then bring those questions, right? So then, so then that, so that's twofold. So the parents are, you know, becoming more engaged in the process and then they're actually coming to the hospital. Um, you know, understanding that when your baby's in a NICU, it, it's very stressful and then your baby could be there for two, three, even six months. So it wears on the parents, but, you know, really empowering them. Um, also, too, for some parents, they, you know, they, they still don't feel comfortable talking to the physicians or to the nurses. So identifying somebody within your sphere who can become an advocate for you, who can speak on your behalf, um, especially, you know, particularly whenever you're there in the hospital. And having that person um, serve as a liaison between, you know, you, the parent, and the healthcare providers. Um, and then on the other side um, of the healthcare providing, um, uh, the end is the physicians and the nurses. So, you know, really encouraging us to listen to our parents, listen to the families, and, you know, take the concerns to heart. Don't dismiss them. And really try to make a connection. Um, so, you know, my my work is I travel to different hospitals and I, I can be in a hospital anywhere between one to two weeks. But I always make an effort to, if I don't see the parents coming to see their babies, I always make an effort to call those parents at least once or twice a week and say, you know, I'm taking care of your baby. I haven't seen you. When are you coming to the hospital? So it's to make it so that, you know, if their baby does end up getting sick, I don't want the parent to meet me when their baby's dying. I want them to know, you know, Dr. Maxwell has called me or I've met with her and she's updated me about my baby and addressed any questions that I have. Now, there are difficult scenarios, you know, stress comes and plays a role and some parents do become difficult. However, if you tried your best to make a connection with those parents, then that drastically reduces the amount the number of difficult scenarios that you can come across when dealing with, um, with families mm-hmm. in a stressful situation. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you so much. This was a very enlightening conversation to say the least. And I hope that um, everyone have actually learned something, even if it's just more awareness that this is certainly a crisis in America that we need to, we need to certainly approach. So thank you very much for uh, joining us and sharing us your views, Abigail. I appreciate it. And thank you, Khadija, for coming back again. Thank you for having these important conversations, Mubaraka. Thank you. And if you are Thank just you tuning much. in, you've been listening to Mornings with Mubaraka on WNHHLP 103.5 FM every Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. And you can catch all of our shows live on TuneIn Radio or the archived on iTunes and SoundCloud. So until next week, I remind you as I do every week, go about your week and be a voice and not an echo.